I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The baffling mystery of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 with 239 people on board has united Malaysia, a nation of numerous ethnicities, as never before in recent memory. On Tuesday evening, gathered in the courtyard of a shopping mall in a suburb of Kuala Lumpur, the Muslim religious leader invited the congregation to pray and was followed by a Christian reading from the Bible, then a Buddhist monk, a Hindu and finally a Taoist priest echoing the imam's pleas before hundreds of worshippers in a largely Muslim country where religious intolerance has been on the rise. Elsewhere this week, Pew Research Centre published the results of a survey conducted among more than 40,000 people in 40 countries between 2011 and 2013, which found that 53% of Americans essentially believe that atheists and agnostics are living in sin. This is despite the fact that a research analyst at the Federal Bureau of Prisons determined that while atheists make up more than 15% of the US population, they only make up 0.2% of the prison population. Now to a book that has been enjoying considerable success of late, having received very positive reviews in many newspapers and journals. It's called The Greening. Joanna, a Fleet Street journalist, chances upon the journal of the mysterious Anna Lee. She's moved by Anna's compelling confessional about her life-changing encounter with Julian of Norwich, an extraordinary woman from another age who risked death at the stake to write a secret manuscript revealing the truth entrusted to her. Joanna becomes captivated by Julian, remembering her own neglected ambition to pursue the truth at all costs. But Julian is from an alien world, Can Joanna believe her promise that pain and suffering can lead to peace and happiness? That's the territory explored by The Greening. It's written by Margaret Coles, a journalist, broadcaster and writer. And she joins us now from the BBC studios in London. Margaret, you're welcome to The God Slot. Thank you, Eileen. Lovely to be with you. Tell us what attracted you to Julian of Norwich. First of all, her courage, because... I thought it was absolutely extraordinary that this lady should have been quietly tucked away in her anchoress's cell and writing something that would have been inflammatory in her day. Indeed, the material which she derived from her visions would have been considered heretical. So had she been discovered, she would have been at risk of of condemnation as a heretic. And of course, in those days, if you're a heretic, you were burnt at the stake. Then I started to get involved with Julian in that I read her book, which is called Revelations of Divine Love. It's so profound, Eileen. There's such extraordinary clarity and truth there that I became engaged and captivated, really. So just as my heroine, Joanna, the journalist, becomes pulled in by Julian, I'm really giving Joanna the experience I had myself with Julian. Were you, like Joanna, dragged into the story of Julian or did you set out on a mission? I was dragged in, actually, and... Oddly enough, Julian says nothing happens by chance. So I was in Norwich and while I was there, I thought I must see Norwich Cathedral because I knew it was famed as being very beautiful. 
by the door there was a display of books and cards and one leaflet caught my eye and on it it had a line drawing of a woman in nun's habit holding between her thumb and her forefinger a tiny object that looked like a hazelnut and I read in this leaflet that there had been in Norwich in the 14th century a woman who was a writer like me but she was a mystic she was a solitary and the site of where her cell had originally been it was about a 10 minutes walk away so I thought I'll go and take a look well I went and took a look and when I got there I went into this little cell and the atmosphere there you know Eileen how some places just have the most wonderful atmosphere that you could almost cut and I went in to the cell and felt so moved. I took a stool and I meditated and I had this wonderful experience, a deeply spiritual experience of, of joy and elation. And I knew I had to write something. Originally it was going to be a play, but it turned into a novel and, and that's what I did. And, and it was 15 years from when I went into that cell. Talk about some of the big themes of Julian. Faith, forgiveness, reconciliation. Yes, Julian, um, even today, you know, some people would consider Julian's teaching controversial. I mean, in brief, she said that there is no anger in God. She says this several times in her book. And she says that God has already forgiven us for everything we will ever do. And far from requiring us to go to him as, oh, I'm a miserable supplicant, I have committed all these sins, what he actually wants us to do is to recognise we made a mistake, accept the forgiveness that's readily awaiting for us, because according to Julian, God has already forgiven us for all wrongdoing, past, present and future. So he simply wants us to access this wonderful forgiveness, learn the lesson and move on. And he positively does not want us to feel guilty and beat ourselves up. Because Julian says that guilt is an absolutely pointless emotion, really. It doesn't get anybody anywhere. And in some parts of the book, she talks about God's motherhood, Christ's motherhood, uh, the Holy Ghost's motherhood, and uses the imagery of a mother who is very loving and diligent about her child, and a mother who knows, understands that her child will make mistakes, will fall, and sometimes she let the child fall so that the child will learn how to be better, really, and how not to repeat the same mistake. That brings Stronger to mind and better. probably mm -hmm. the best-known quote, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Isn't that beautiful, Eileen? Doesn't that, isn't that so reassuring? Yes, it is. It's a very well-known quote. But she said this as someone who, who knew the dark side of life, that she would have been a mother when she was young and widowed and lost a child to the plague so that um, they see her background not as a nun, but as a woman who really was an ordinary woman living out in the world, who, after she had this series of visions, decided to become enclosed so that she had the privacy that she needed and the seclusion to ponder the meaning of the visions, which she did over very many years, and then write this wonderful book full of wisdom, a book that now is considered to be a spiritual classic. Now, she's never been canonised or even beatified. Do you think this was mm. because of the content of what she was writing or because simply not a lot was known about her? The experts, and I bow to the experts because I've, you know, I've talked a lot with theologians who specialise in Julian and in medievalists, and the consensus seems to be that 
this was one small voice that was easy to overlook because this really wasn't the way that the church was developing throughout the centuries. And the fact that her book survived at all is a miracle because um, when Henry VIII sacked the monasteries, um, the feeling is that one monk or none must have tucked this plain little book written in English into their, into their possessions and taken it with them when they fled to the continent. And somehow this little book survived. And that in itself, experts say, is a miracle. And, you know, when you look at it, you think, well, yes, it, it was a miracle, really, absolutely amazing. And some experts think that Julian's writing, which was, as you say, Eileen, largely ignored for the best part of 600 centuries, was preserved for our own time. There's a wonderful expert on Julian, Sister Benedicta Ward, who told me that she, she fervently believes this, that Julian's writing, which she said was for what she called her even Christians, which could be translated as ordinary people, um, was specifically written for us who are alive today. And, you know, and I think that hair stand up on the back of my neck, really, because mm. that's so exciting, isn't it? Well, as we say, you apply that in the novel to Joanna, mm -hmm. who's the journalist. Yes. She becomes captivated by Julian, remembering yes. her own ambition to pursue the truth at mm -hmm. all costs. You describe the world of journalism as quite a murky world. Yes, well, it is. And I speak as one who knows, because I did spend many years working in Fleet Street. And um, also, I worked many years at the BBC, as it happened. But... What I do with Joanna, my heroine, um, is she's having a tempestuous affair with a government minister. And this minister is a rather sinister character in the background who appears to be manipulating the political affairs that she's reporting. She finds herself put very much on the line, her conscience put on the line, because she is being asked by her editor to write for the very first time. She's being asked to write things that she knows are wrong and to smear a whistleblower who's actually actually um, blowing the whistle on something that the government is doing and which she suspects her lover is involved with behind, behind the scenes. Would you like to do a little reading from it for us? Mm. I entered the cell. To the right of the small space was a window looking onto a patch of grass and flowers enclosed by the church wall. To the front was a plain table covered by a white cloth upon which stood two candlesticks. High up on the wall, above the table, was a large wooden crucifix. Some little stools were stacked near the door. I took one and sat on it and closed my eyes. I felt a strong feminine presence, the warmth of a woman whose love enfolded all those who entered the place. Margaret Coles, thank you very much. You're greening about Julian of Norwich, the anchoress or the woman who hid herself away in prayer. It's a great read and it's published by Hay House. Margaret, thank you very much. Constantine, you are the emperor's son. Your path is preordained. My path is my own. Movie blockbusters are very much the order of the day, particularly religious blockbusters with Russell Crowe in the eponymous role of Noah soon to open here and then we're due a film on the exodus while the spin-off movie from the TV series The Bible titled Son of God is enjoying great box office success in the US.
Well, word has also reached us of a new film in the making, which deals with the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea held in 325, one of the most important events in the history of Christianity. The movie is called, unsurprisingly, Nicaea, and from the studios of WFLA in Florida, the film's producer Charles Parlato spoke to Jerry McArdle, and from Galway they were joined by our regular film correspondent, who also lectures in theology and ethics at Galway Mayo IT, that's Barry Macmillan, and he was intrigued by this whole idea of a new religious and historical epic. Uh, Charles, you've, you've talked there uh, about epic, uh, and, and we're familiar with, with older biblical epics such as let's say, the Ten Commandments or the greatest story ever told on the one hand, and we've had, uh, if you like, more devotional films such as, say, The Passion of the Christ, were due some contemporary biblical epics uh, this year, like Noah and Exodus. Of course, there's a long history of historical epics. Into which of those strands, if you like, if any of them, uh, do you see the film fitting? Very difficult question. It, I, the, one of the great problems in terms of trying to make people understand this movie is that it really doesn't fit any particular genre. Okay. Um, it is not a novel wrapped around an historical event. It's not um, a, a biblical story per se. I mean, Ben-Hur is a, is a novel wrapped around this biblical historical event of, the, of, of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, all the other stories are basically biblical-based, uh, but this is a historic drama. We, we could do this movie without any uh, religious component to it, but, okay. but what we've done here is... Is, is the historical event of, of the Council of Nicaea, which is the denouement of the movie. So it doesn't really fit anything because it's a movie about a question. Okay. It's the ultimate theological question which Jesus asks his uh, disciples, which is essentially, but who do you say that I am? In that respect then, Charles, uh, because when, when Jerry and I first uh, discussed the film and, and, and kind of had a look at the trailer, uh, the historical period is is long uh, the events are dense uh, the uh, complexities of the council are substantial and I just wondered uh, why in an, in an era of long-form television drama particularly American television drama which is you know writing very high critically at the minute why did you choose to present this particular story as a film rather than for example with perhaps what might have been the advantages of a long-form uh, TV series Good question, Barry. Um, this is not simply a historic drama in the sense of a normal series. What we're trying to do is get an audience to come in and focus on this particular event and the question. Mm -hmm. So uh, while we could have done a more extensive and detailed historical um, series, we wanted to have it to be one event film. Because the purpose of the film is to have people focus on the ultimate question of Christianity, which is the divinity of Jesus. Sure. And it's not necessarily for believers who understand why they believe. Can I ask you a question, uh, Charles, if, if, if you don't mind, sure. Barry, if I, if I just jump in here? Um, is this a commercial enterprise? Do you intend to make a, a profit out of this, or can you take a loss on it? What's going to draw people into the cinema? I don't know why you wouldn't go see it. Why wouldn't you go see the most important historical event for, the, for Western civilization? I mean, you have the first Christian emperor 
who in fact calls the first general council of the church to discuss the fundamental tenet of the faith, namely, who is Jesus of Nazareth? We will have some, we will have some good B-list actors in this. They, there will be four major supporting roles, but I think probably Constantine and Athanasius, we don't want any sort of baggage. Uh, is it a commercial enterprise? Of course. Of course. I think it's, I think it's going to make an enormous amount of money, but hopefully that money will be flowing principally to charities, which is the way we've set this up. Uh, you know, I've put in an enormous amount of money plus eight years of my life. I don't get any money out unless this, uh, this is successful financially. I mean, there is a formula that Hollywood uses, namely who are the stars, but content wise, it's, it's, I, I think it's hit and miss. Um, and, and if you took the, if you took a look at Noah and, uh, and Exodus, I, I'm not here to say they're not going to be successful, but I would say, say at Nicaea at 30 to $35 million is a far better financial bet than, than those two movies at $150 million. Charles, yes. just, just a, a, a kind of development of, of, of Jerry's question there. Um, the passion of the Christ, and I'm, I'm, Assuming from how you've what you've said that you're hoping for something of the same kind of, um, if you like, unconventional impact, it was presented as uh, you know some, somewhat cocking a snook at the Hollywood establishment. Uh, it it did what it did in many ways in an unconventional way in terms of how it raised its funding, in terms of how it generated word of mouth. In some senses, you're working with the system, but you're working with the system outside the system. Is it difficult to attract finance and experienced cast and crew uh, to a project such as Nicaea? You want the standard answer to the truth? <laughs> well, I think the um, truth is on the table here. The truth is... The money's in hand. You'll get very substantial people to to be on board. Okay. The roles that we have are are outstanding. They're uh, of major import, and most actors don't have an opportunity to do movies like this. Mm-hmm. So I don't really anticipate that being the problem. Uh, the problem is raising the money, and and that is because we're doing something that is really outside what um, Hollywood has ever done. Uh, it even scares the religious community because we're talking about something that is very close and uh, important to everyone. And so there's a concern that uh, maybe this won't do justice to it um, or um, in some way we'll come up short and, uh, and and this will be an embarrassment to the religious as well. Charles, it seems to me, even at this point, that that one of the things, maybe even the most crucial thing that Nicaea will either stand or fall on uh, will be its accurate rendering of the events and of the, yes. the complex ideas it depicts. So just what historical sources um, have, have been drawn on in putting the project together? That's a great question. Um, I can tell you, uh, Barry, that we have the right events. We have the right flow of events. We think we've drawn the characters properly. Um, and, and all we can say is it is our best effort. Uh, moreover, uh, we are going to be trying to do two, uh, two sequels. One is going to be called Alexandria, which is the aftermath of the, uh, of the council and which essentially is about the story of Athanasius. And the, uh, the other one will be called Constantinople, which uh, is the Council of Constantinople in 381. So we anticipate two uh, sequels. 
I will say that on the website, we will be putting a link to all the original um, writings, the ancient writings uh, that we've used uh, in terms of formulating the story. Charles, there's clearly very serious intent behind the film. Uh, There's very serious uh, motivation behind it. Do you see it having some kind of catalytic role or something of that nature in the wider culture? Is that why we're talking about this film? The the central organising principle of of all of the West has been Christianity. Uh, So this this is a way of getting back to the fundamental issue of if Jesus is God on earth, then he has authority over our life. So there is a broader question. And then there is this component of, of conflict about the nature of Jesus. I mean, if we had to pick the one issue that is a major conflict between the Islamic and the Christian communities is still the nature of Jesus of Nazareth and whether, he was, whether he's part of the Godhead. And all I would say to my Muslim friends and to my Jewish friends is watch the movie, think about it, and try to understand, and, and, and I think in that sense, it will, be, it will bring unification and understanding. I hope some healing, too. Well, Charles, uh, it's, uh, it's certainly a film that's going to provoke. Uh, it's certainly a film that's going to generate discussion, and I look forward to reviewing it. That was Barry Macmillan concluding that conversation between himself, Jerry McArdle and Charles Parlato, the producer of the yet-to-be-made movie Nicaea. Finally tonight, members of the Irish diaspora who are unable to travel to Ireland to attend family funerals will soon be able to avail of a newly launched service providing internet broadcasts of Irish funeral services to clients. So says the press release from Funerals Live, the brainchild of County Clare businessman Alan Foody, who's announced plans to create up to 10 new jobs over the next 18 months as the service is rolled out. So how will this go down in a country where it's generally acknowledged that we do death so well? Alan Foody is on the line. Welcome to the Godslot, Alan. Thanks, Eileen. How did this idea come about? A person asked me in in America, um, would I be able to record her dad's funeral and send out a DVD of it? So I told her, no problem. But I said, I can actually send it out through the internet now and you'd have it a lot sooner. So she said, that'd be brilliant. And it's kind of developed from there. It's going to be completely private. It's uh, a password only to the family and only the family can watch it. Um, So they can have the church and the graveside if they want. Um, That's up to them how much they want done. And as we say, you're based in County Clare. Are you hoping to be able to go all over the country with yes, this? Yes, to be nationwide, um, I'm planning to employ uh, 10 people throughout the country. Um, so anyone that wants it done will be able to get it done quite easily. And what kind of reaction have you been getting from the churches in particular? The church is, is happy with it because they understand it's for the family members only. It's not a media thing. It's, um, it's a very private thing. And the way they look at it is... If it helps the family and they're grieving, that's fine. You see, the big problem, Eileen, is, does it, as you know yourself, there's a lot of Americans, of Irish in America without green cards, and they just cannot come home. Um, they will lose their livelihood if they come home. So it's for these people, basically, this has been done. And what about mourners who are grieving in the church, who may be somewhat camera shy and not like the notion of a camera around them? It will, it will be the family that will employ me. I won't be there unless I'm asked to be there. So it, that will be discussed, obviously, by the family 
Okay, and you say you can do the gravesite. Would you do the wake as well, which is so much a part of, of the Irish tradition, particularly in the country? I haven't been asked to do the wake yet, but if that's the family's wishes, yes. You have to remember this is usually for a son or a daughter or somebody very close. Um, I've done a funeral there recently. It was for a man in a nursing home and his wife died and he couldn't get to the funeral. So the family came in with him after and they sat down together and watched it. I know that must have been tough on the family twice over, but I suppose at the end of the day, it was his wife and they, all, they were all happy to be together. And what about non-Christian faiths and indeed people of no faith? Can you help them? I can, sure. If they get on to me, um, there's no problem. It's what they want to This is for people that cannot get to the ceremony. That's, that's the long and the short of it. And is it expensive, just finally, for it's listeners? €350 Euros is the average price for it. Well, it's obviously gaining traction and we'll put details on our website. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for joining us on The God Slot. Thank you very much, Alan. Now, this Sunday morning at 11, following the repeat broadcast of this programme on RTE Radio 1 Extra and Longwave 252, you can hear Mass from St Joseph's Church in Baltonglass in County Wicklow, followed by a Presbyterian service from Adelaide Road Church in Dublin. Today is Nauru's, the Baha'i New Year Festival, and we send our best wishes to our Baha'i listeners in Ireland and abroad. And that's our programme for this week. The phone number is 012082039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and the postal address is the godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. Until next Friday at the same time, Gugudi Jiyashif.